coming up, we have a few events. Now, those of you who have been members for a while, you know that November means, uh, some of you may be doing, anybody doing the New York City Marathon? Anybody doing that? No. Chicago, anybody doing Chicago? Oh, well, no, we're, well, Gordon's doing Chicago. Well, that, okay, if you're not doing New York, you're not doing Chicago, that means you have got to be thinking about the Tom Walker, right? Yes. November 11th, Tom Walker, it's on a Sunday. It's going to be uh, the Tom Walker, is the half marathon, and then we have the Keith Brantley 5K. So there's no excuse. You can pick your 5K or the full half marathon. It will be on the scenic, safe, savory Hawthorne Trail, as always. We will have an award ceremony afterwards. Keith Brantley, the Brantley family is going to be there. And I believe the Tom Walker family is going to be there as well. Very special. So since no one's doing any other races, I expect everybody to show up, right? Yes. Also, after the race, we're going to have an after party. We're not sure of the exact time or anything, but at first magnitude. And guess what that means? We all get a free beer ticket. Yeah, yeah. So we'll definitely recover the right way after the race. I, I like that. After, after which, uh, the next big event for the, on the Florida Track Club calendar is, of course, our shorter mile, which is January 1st. So let's start the new year with a one in that column. Now, we start that race at 12 noon, so you have plenty of time to party hardy, recover, and show up. So that's another thing on the calendar uh, to start the year off on the right foot. Uh, we have a social, we'll have a social event in December. We're not, we're working out the details on that. Also, another thing that I want to bring up is next month is elections. I'm not talking about the state elections. November, I'll be working the polls, by the way. And by the way, public service announcement, if you want to vote at the library, vote early. Otherwise, on the day of election, as the deputy at the Tower Road Library Branch, I've got to send people to other places. It's very annoying, very upsetting. People get upset. They vote a provisional ballot. They don't like it. So if you're going to vote, vote early and vote at the library. And this way you get that done. But we also have our club elections. It's not as dramatic and not as, as crazy. And we will have those elections also at the after-party meeting. So this way, um, maybe that drink ticket may not be such a bad idea after all. Especially for convincing people to be on the board. Exactly. Um, we want you to this have as many power, free yes. beers as possible to convince you that being on the board is a great idea. Yes, Patrick has given away our strategy. Yes, we do. We, we, do. Uh, we always need more, our new blood on the board. Those of us who have been serving, you know, we kind of... You know, we get, it gets kind of old, and there's a lot of opportunities to serve. If you don't want to serve on the board, though, there's always the races. After all, these things don't just happen by themselves. We do need people to help put them on. And so I think now it's 7.04. We got another minute. Oh, there's someone <laughs> See? Yeah, so it's o'clock. Please make sure you get your tickets. There's raffle tickets out there, so if you haven't gotten a raffle yeah, ticket, make sure you get one. There's the Chicago Marathon. Yeah, there's Chicago Marathon. Chicago Marathon, right? <laughs> if you didn't get a raffle ticket, they're out in the hallway. Get as many, you know, vote early, vote often. No, no, no. No, 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 no. We can't vote often. Oh, come on now. We can't vote. No. I'm 
the deputy, only one vote per person. All right, just not at, at Elizabeth's polling station, everywhere else. Yes, and if you're from Ocala, please don't go to the Tower Road Library <laughs> and ask me, can I vote here? No, you can't. You've got to be at your polling place, anyway. So, uh, without, okay, does everybody yep. have seats? Does everybody, everybody settle down here? We got Grab seats. chairs, steal them all, just yeah, watch out for these very precarious cables that we have set up. Right, right. And so I, I think that's all the announcements we have at this time. Anybody else have anything exciting to report? Anything earth-shattering? Uh, scholarships? Oh, scholarships must be, the request for the scholarships must be in by November 1st. You have one month from today to request a scholarship for races that take place. They can be anywhere. They can be local. They can be outside of the But the time frame, they have to. Oh, check. right. Um, it's going to be, um, I believe, January to June. So, so okay. looking ahead, um, if you have a race coming up, the track club has funds set aside to help you get there. So um, the application is very simple. I can help you find it. It's online under the blog section of our website. Um, it basically asks you four questions, write a few sentences fill out a budget sheet, submit it, and then um, a committee of three of your peers reads it and lets you know um, if you won or not. And you can win or be awarded up to $250. So it's a nice, nice way to keep Steve's memory alive and to help defray the costs of traveling. And, and, it's all that, and all that's required is either you write an article for publication in our newsletter, or you and, and make a presentation to the members. And wear our singlet in the race. Pardon? And wear our singlet in the race. Yes, wear the singlet in the race. Yes, be properly clad, or else you'll be bad. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to bring up Rob Eggleston, Robert, Steve. Robert, Robert yeah. who is going to introduce our guest speaker, take some notes, and uh, I I can't get over the long hair. I don't know oh, just wait. Have. It gets better. Okay. I prepared a speech. <laughs> Hi, my name is Rob. I'm a runner. Hi, Rob. Thanks. That's all I got. Good night. It's been three weeks since my last registration. Our speaker tonight is a man who needs no introduction, but uh, I'm going to give him one anyway because promises were made as well as mistakes a long, long time ago. Please watch the ABC after school special, put that thing back where it came from, or so help me for the complete backstory. <laughs> from the creator of What's the Plan comes a man who was there for my first steps as a middle-aged runner. He was there for my first ultra, and he'll probably be there as I'm eaten alive by an anaconda in the jungles of San Velasco. <laughs> He's a teacher, a life coach, a running coach, an inspiration, and one of my favorite humans to ever human. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your clappers together for my friend, Patrick Gallagher. I'm done. After, after that intro, I'm, I'm going home. Uh, there's no other way to back that up. All right. Um, thank you so much, Rob. Uh, and thank you, everybody else, for coming out tonight. I know um, it was interesting to be asked uh, to give a presentation for the Florida Track Club since I'm probably most well-known for my exploits far away from the track. Uh, as a matter of fact, my favorite things that I like to do are as far away from a track as humanly possible. 
uh, and we'll get into some of those stories in a moment. But I titled tonight's presentation, um, From Track to Trails and Back Again. Because the track is an absolute critical component of all of my training that I do for all of my races. And I'm going to talk about how uh, absolutely important that is and, uh, and why I believe in what Florida Track Club is able to do for uh, Alachua County and the greater Gainesville area and everywhere else around. Uh, so you'll see a few pictures up there, but we'll get into this as a little history to start us all off. And we're going to test to see if everything works. So there's the full picture uh, that you see there, and that was taken in 1993 uh, during the track season, and that was not a wig, <laughs> is the most important thing noted there. Um, I started running competitively in high school, as I said here, after I failed uh, foray into high school cross country my freshman year. I did try to go out for cross country when I was a freshman. This was when I was a senior, and uh, that didn't go well because I had a bunch of degenerate friends. And my degenerate friends had much more interesting plans after school than running around in the woods, uh, which mainly included running around in the woods and drinking and then getting out of the woods. So that was what I went for instead when I was a freshman. By the time I was a senior, I decided that I was going to go out for track, but I was going to be a pole vaulter. Yeah. Uh, so I broke my arm, not pole vaulting. There's an entire separate story in which I broke my arm in front of the entire school during the, <laughs> during the pep rally before I could even compete in the pole vault. So if you look at the photo, there's actually a cast on my left arm. Yeah, see that? So I ran the entire season. Uh, that was a precursor to my tattoos. Uh, as you can see, all of the people signing my cast, and now I've got all of these crazy tattoos up and down my arms. So I was supposed to be a pole vaulter, but I broke my arm, so I decided to, to run the 800, uh, what I believe is the second craziest event that you can do in track and field. First is the pole vault, second is the 800. Uh, no one wanted to run the 800, and so I came back from my broken arm, and the coaches said, nobody wants to run the 800, so everybody's going to run the 800 today. And they made every single one of us, the, the track guys, the weight guys, everybody, run the 800, and anybody who came even vaguely close to a time that would place was immediately an 800 runner. And so I became an 800 runner because without any training or anything like that, uh, nearly vomiting, I was able to pull off an 800 and under 230. Um, and so I stayed with it. Uh, and here's the thing that I learned about the track starting back in 1993. Uh, the track never lies. And that's the beauty of it, and that's the harsh, wonderful, brutal, brutal beauty of the track. Uh, your, your GPS can lie. Every single one of you in here know that. You can go out and do a run on your GPS, and it'll tell you a different distance. But when you step foot on the track, it never lies. You can try and massage your times. You can try and massage your pace. You can try and do anything you want, but the track never lies. So if you ever want just that gut check of like, well, what can I really do an 800 in? I don't recommend it, by the way. What can I do a mile in? What can I do a 5K in? You step onto the track to find out because the track never lies. You know, you can talk about a course. You're like, oh, this 5K was short. This 5K was long. This one had hills. This one did this. This one did that. The track never lies. So one of the things that I've always appreciated about the track is that it is always there and it's always consistent. 
you step foot on the starting line and you start running and you're either going to go 400 meters or you're going to go 440 yards if you're lucky enough to find a track that was still built back in the day when they actually made tracks that were a full mile long. And so most tracks now, like if you go to the track uh, at UF, it's 400 meters and we all know as, uh, uh, as obsessed as we are with such conversions that a mile is actually 1,610 meters not 1,600 meters, which is four laps on the track. So we all know that difference, of course. I'm going to go along as if that alarm is not life-threatening, whatever that happened to be. All right. So back in 1993, I started running around the track, and um, there was a part of it that really appealed to me because it never lied. You could go out and you could do this, and you could run around it, and you could step up against everybody else, and it was completely equal. I even loved how everything was staggered, depending on the race that you started. You know, it started a staggered start if it was 100 or 200, or not 100, but 200 and things like that. There's a funny side story about the one day that I showed up at a meet and my coach said that I was running the 400 that day. And I had never run a 400 before in my life. And it was just that he was like, you'll never, you'll never place in today's 800. So I want you to run the 400 because their guy got sick. And so... Imagine an 800 guy who starts standing up. The 400 uses start blocks. I had no idea how to use start blocks. So I started standing up. That guy, the one with the long hair and the, the cast on his left arm. I started standing up for the 400 that day. And I'm sure if there was internet and uh, everything like that, 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 that video would be infamous by now of me doing the stand start while everybody else was in their blocks and running around. So... The track never lies. So over the course of the years, once again, this was 1993. Um, I didn't like some of the truths that the track told me. So I didn't run again after high school until about six years later. And then I found something else that fueled me. Uh, it says on my little road ID that I am fueled by spite. And that is absolutely true at times. And so what happened was is that I was volunteering for the middle school that I taught at over in St. Augustine. And they had the Gamble Rogers 10K. We did the Gamble Rogers Folk Festival, if anybody's ever been over there to do that. Back in the day, it was the middle school students. And they had a 10K, and another teacher said she was running it. I was like, oh, I think I would, right in front of my assistant principal. And he said, really? It takes a lot of preparation to do that. Do you think you would even finish? <laughs> I signed up right then and there for the 10K. And I went home. And I got a pair of board shorts because that was the only thing that I had lying around the house that could pass as something akin to running shorts. I grabbed an old pair of beat-up uh, sneakers and I was just like, I ran 800 in high school. I'm going to run a 10K. This will be fine. It sucked. <laughs> a lot. Real bad, actually. And the funny story about that is, is that I came in first place for the faculty. They gave us a separate award for faculty finish. I was the only male finisher. So I, I took first place male uh, finisher in that. And uh, you'll love this time. Uh, it took me one hour and seven minutes to run 10K. And I couldn't walk for three or four days afterwards. Uh, but I learned then that I had uh, the ability to run far beyond what was actually rational. Uh, if I just tapped into a reservoir of spite. So, uh, to spite my assistant principal, who I wasn't the biggest fan of, and when he said that, it was like, well, you know, it takes a lot of training to do that. I was like, sir, I'm going to do this right now. 
and I did. And that actually set the stage for everything else that I've probably done since then. So six years later, I actually end up in Paraguay. So I'm a high school teacher, and at the time I was teaching middle school, and uh, my wife and I at the time got interested in teaching overseas. Uh, so we applied to teach at an international American school. We went to a whole recruiting fair, whole long story there, and we ended up accepting jobs working in Paraguay which is dead center of South America. No, it is not part of Uruguay. It's not even vaguely close to Uruguay. There's a whole long story there. So we ended up in Paraguay. And there's not a lot to do in Paraguay. All right? So I met a guy, his name is Rich, and he was the computer teacher. And he is one of those people, which some of you may be that person, and maybe you know a person like this. It's the person who really got you started running. It was that person who had a really bad idea, and you agreed, <laughs> right? Because we, as runners, generally fall into that category of somebody says, I have a really bad idea, and we say, what time? <laughs> and so Rich was that guy. He was the computer teacher, and he started saying, this was his idea. I moved into a house that was occupied by the previous, a previous teacher at the school. And he said, well, that house was my former running partner, so you need to take over his job as my running partner. <laughs> what? And so I'm in a different country, and I'm like, I guess so. And at the time, some of you who know more about the rest of my story will really get a kick out of this. I said, I don't know, man. I'm a 5K runner, maybe 10K at the most, but nothing more. Right. So Rich is the one to blame for everything else that comes afterwards because he said, sure, come on out with me. And he had a dog named Canyon, and we would meet at 5.30 in the morning, and he would lead me on these runs around Asuncion in Paraguay. And we would start running around on the streets before dawn, dodging drunks from the night before and all sorts of other fun stories that are along those ways. And then Rich said, I'm running the marathon in August. You should run it with me. Okay. And I signed up for the Asuncion Marathon. The in <laughs> Marathon de Internacional de City de Asuncion, or whatever it is says on my shirt there. International, because there were like three Brazilians and me and Rich. So <laughs> we had, there, there were five people who weren't Paraguayans, so it was automatically international. And so he lined up on the start line for this, and uh, it started an hour and a half late. Uh, yeah, so the, right. Everyone in here who's like, we, we dial our, di our diet, we dial our nutrition, we dial our everything. And we're standing around and we're going, are we going to start? And everything in Paraguay was in seguida, in seguida, like in a second, like it's going to happen any second now. And it was in seguida for about 90 minutes before the race was actually, bueno, vamos a empezar, we're going to start. And then it was just a bunch of guys on the street, they half closed traffic, literally, half-closed traffic, took us out onto the street, and they were like, bueno, go! And we ran. And there was a guy who was actually out there who, it makes me you know, think about him every now and again. He was amazing. He ran that course in two hours and 19 minutes. And he was, yeah, right? And he was 19 years old. And he was, you know, didn't have any of the, the benefits of being a runner in the States or anything like that. That's, a, that's Olympic trials qualifying kind of time. And he's 19 and running just on the open streets of Paraguay. So I was actually impressed. I was on my second loop. It was two loops of this course. I'm out on my second loop, and he goes by. I'm like, dang, that guy's fast. And then I realized everybody went home. 
because the first place person finished. So they're like, well, we're done here. And they all just left. And so the police left and everybody, like they stopped closing traffic. The people who were giving out water went home because the winter already finished. What are you still doing here? And it kind of set the stage for self-reliance later on uh, as far as racing goes. But I did finish, and this was me in 2001, in August of 2001. I just recently found this picture again um, fin after the finish of my first marathon, uh, which was in Asuncion. The streets were wide open. I ended up dodging buses, uh, not having any water on the course. There was a random dude from the embassy who showed up, the American embassy, because he was like, oh God, these runners are going to die. And he showed up on the street corner handing out oranges and, uh, and, and water to people because they were, everybody else went home. And so uh, I was super proud to have not died uh, <laughs> during that marathon. And it also set the stage for what I would future call my, my, my two rules for running. So it all started back then. But Rich was also the one, besides all these crazy ideas, he started the idea that we needed to go to the track on a semi-regular basis. So he started finding places where we could run, and there turned out to be a track that we could go and run on. And so every week we drove over and we ran on this track. And, and Rich, uh, as a backstory, Rich was an ultramarathon runner in the late 80s and early 90s. When, when nobody ran ultramarathons. Long, 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 long time before Born to Run or anything like that. Rich was just out running ultramarathons. He and his buddies would go run, and this is the state of affairs at the time in 91, 92. They would go run, five, six of them, and they would do a race report and write their results and send it into Ultra Running Magazine. And it would be published every time because they were so desperate for race reports <laughs> and race results. That if it was three or more, it was like, you know, church in a sense, you know, two or three or more gathered in my name and you have, you have prayer. And so in this case, it was like two or three or more and you've got an ultra. And so they would go out and they would just run around and they would self-report. And he showed me all of these ultra running magazines from the early 90s where their races were listed. So Rich always had these crazy ideas and he was never, he was never beholden to the idea that it had to be an event. He would just come up with this idea. Like he would be like, we, sometimes it would be the moment we would meet on a Saturday for a long run and he would say, how about we insert dumb idea? <laughs> and you're already there and you're already going to go for a run. So you're like, all right. And he spoke fluent Spanish. I spoke none. So I ended up following Rich and his dog Canyon all over the place. <clears throat> One side story of this, we ended up in the, the, you know, the equivalent of, 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 of favela, as they say in Brazil, but it was a slum. And we ended up on all these roads and it dead ended in this ditch where there was just trash piled knee high on both sides of the ditch. And kids, it was a terrible sight, rummaging through it and hogs and all this other stuff. And I'm like, Rich, where are we? And Rich is like, I'll ask. And he turns to a kid and I knew this much Spanish. And he turns to the kid and he says, hey, how do we get out of here? And I tapped Rich on the shoulder and said, if he knew the answer, he wouldn't be here. <laughs> and that was the kind of thing that Rich and I did. And it just set, I'm very thankful. Coming from the idea that the track was so structured, that then going to this idea that everything was just an idea. Just come up with an idea and go for a run. We had no GPS watches. We had no way of knowing where we went. I could not re I've tried on Google Earth a couple times. I cannot recreate the routes 
that we did. Sometimes they included a ferry that ran intermittently from a peninsula on the River Paraguay to the downtown area. How do you put that on Strava? Like, how would you, how would you note that, that you went across the Asuncion Bay on an intermittently running ferry that you just stood around and waited for and hoped that it would show up? And so I'm always going to be appreciative of that uh, time that I had in Paraguay because it just gave me this idea that you don't always need something that's structured. Right? So, in that time period, there was all these people who would come and go uh, as American teachers would. And the middle guy in this photo is a guy named Wendell. The guy on the left is Rich. He was the one with all the bad ideas and it's all his fault. All right? And then there I am with fewer tattoos and the same silly grin all the way on the right. And so Wendell there decided that he was going to run a marathon. He had never run a marathon in his life, and he was going to run a marathon. And he got super nervous about three or four weeks out. And I, and I went to him, and I said, you know what? I'm going to run with you. And he said, what are you talking about? You, you're going to run with Rich. And there was another guy, Ben, that we had there. And I said, no, you know what? I'm going to run with you. And I don't really remember what possessed me for this idea. Uh, but I think that it was a question that my uh, wife at the time had asked me about my first marathon. She was like, are, are the other people going to run with you? And I was like, no, it's a race. It's, it's every man for himself. And she was like, well, what are you going to do, like, out there by yourself? And I honestly had never thought about it because I'd always run with someone. And then I thought of Wendell being out there on that course just by himself. And I thought to myself, I'd rather run with Wendell. Like, that was going to be so much more important to me. And so I did. Then this is Wendell at the finish of his one and only marathon. As he, as he often said, he was one and done. Like he did his one and that was it. Um, and he, he had names along those lines for all of his fantasy football teams that were along those lines. Like one and done. Like, you know, it was just always getting out. And so I paced Wendell for that entire race. And his only mantra for the entire race was, beat Oprah. <laughs> that was his only goal during that entire race was beat Oprah if you don't know Oprah ran the Chicago Marathon in 4 hours and 20 something minutes or something along those lines I think it was 423 I, I'm not sure off the top of my head but his goal was beat Oprah that was the only goal he had and so while we were out there my goal my job was to tell him whether or not we were beating Oprah and so you can imagine these two bone-white dudes running through Asuncion in Paraguay with the idea that we're going to beat Oprah. <laughs> and I'm very happy to say Wendell ended up doing it. He beat Oprah. He finished in, in something like 4.13 or 4.15 or something along those lines. And it's, it's fun for me to think now how those times don't matter anymore. Like the time that Wendell finished that marathon. It really doesn't matter to me anymore. But what I do remember is sitting down for this photo afterwards and Wendell being so proud and so happy of finishing that marathon. And it, it gave me something more than any other race goal that I had ever had. I had already tried to run uh, marathons and trying to qualify for Boston and I was trying to run 10Ks in under 40 minutes. I was trying to do all these other things. Running with Wendell meant more to me than all the rest of that. And it really started this idea that it can be about other people. And sometimes that's the absolute best experience is to give up what you could want out of a race and just completely give it over to someone else. So this was a couple of years. I think that was 2003. Uh, it was two years after my first marathon. 
and, uh, and Wendell finished his first. So dreams along those lines are worth chasing. That first time that I tried to qualify for Boston was 2002. I did not even come close. Uh, I, I think I was 30 minutes off. I was running the Disney Marathon. I had come from Paraguay where it was summertime. I showed up at Disney. It was one of those stupid record low starts where it was in the low 30s, upper 20s. I remember being in a trash bag and having no idea what in the hell I had gotten myself into. I remember it started raining. I remember going through... Um, uh, MGM Studios, I think, and going over some sort of overpass and both of my legs locking up and feeling like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz and hoping someone could come along with an oil can and unfreeze my legs. Like, it did not go well. So it took me, um, I think it was almost six, 15, 14, 14, 15 years uh, before I finally qualified for the Boston Marathon. And uh, I was always super excited about the idea of qualifying for Boston. And I, I like that it took me that long. I like that it was something that took me the better part of 15 years to be able to qualify for Boston. And so when I went to Boston, this is actually the only photo that I have that has anything close to being Boston. I don't have any race photos, really. I have some Facebook Live videos, but I really couldn't figure out how to import them. Um, <laughs> because when I went, I just wanted to have fun. After all of the work of all those years of all this like preparation, I went to Boston and I thought, I, I'm going to have fun with this. And, and already you can tell that over the course of 15 years, I thought running 26.2 miles could somehow be fun. So there had been a cataclysmic shift in my mentality uh, toward the psychotic side. And definitely into the masochistic side. Where I was just like, I'm going to run 26.2 miles just for fun. And so I went to Boston with this idea that I was going to do it just for fun. And I had so much fun running this because it was about achieving a dream. And I didn't want to re-qualify for Boston. I was always like, Wendell, I was going to be one and done. I'm going to go to Boston one time. I don't want to worry about my time. I don't want to worry about anything else. The day before, we were jumping around on a jetty. Uh, I lost my phone. I may have dived into a jetty and had to be pulled out by my, my running shorts I may have mooned a couple of seagulls in the process. It's a long story. But I, I, I towed the start line in, in Boston, in Hopkinton, actually. And I just wanted to have fun. And I felt myself, like everybody else, there was this tension, like at the start line of Boston. And I just wanted to have fun. So I ran the first 5K with everybody who was around. And I purposely went into a porta potty Because I was like, well, you know what? I, just, I don't want them to be around me anymore. I wanted them to get away from me. And then after that, after I came out of the porta potty, I just started running. I sang along with every single song that was being played on the side of the road. I high-fived every kid. I ate a bunch of ice pops. You know when they say don't do new things at a race? I did. I ate ice pops. Like little kids, they may have been offering them. They may have been excited. I don't know. But I, I took some ice pops from kids uh, during the race. I should have checked. Um, and I was going along through there. And uh, when I got to Wellesley, um, and you get to the tunnel of Scream, the Scream Tunnel, whatever you want to call it, um, and the girls are out there, and they got these big signs, and like, kiss me, and it has this. You know, one of them said, kiss me if you understand this, and it was written in Spanish. And I was like, thank God for Paraguay. Like, everything came together. And so I ran up and got a kiss from her. One was, uh, kiss me if you want to overthrow the patriarchy. Yes. Um, all sorts of variations like that. I probably got at least... Uh, a dozen or so kisses from 
college co-eds while I was running through that mile uh, as we go through Wellesley. And it was hilarious. And it was fun. And I had Facebook Live video going the whole time. At one point, I was running next to a dude who was running the whole race in a, in a chicken costume. <laughs> and, and we talked about that and the, 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 the logistics that he had never really run more than two miles in his chicken costume. And I tried to imagine him doing a training run for two miles in a chicken costume. And now he's doing it during, during Boston. And we were running along. And uh, my favorite memory of the entire race, well, there's actually a couple, I should say. Uh, one was I was running along and a woman had a big sign and said, go Patrick, go. I didn't know her, but I went up to her and I said, my name's Patrick and I love your sign. She's like, fantastic. I took a selfie with her. Another <laughs> one said, I couldn't get to Wellesley, but I'll give you a kiss here. And so I get a kiss from her somewhere near Newton, I think. Um, I got to the top of the Newton Hills and I realized that I was at the top of Heartbreak Hill after the fact. Because there was, you know, there was no big sign at the bottom that I saw. And then somebody was like, you made it. I was like, yes. I stopped to get a high five from that guy. <laughs> and then at mile 24, as you get down and you can see the sit-go sign and you're getting real close. The whole day, I had been wanting someone. Like, I just had this idea of a Boston, Massachusetts kind of person offering me a beer and a brat. I don't know where I got this idea from. <laughs> But I had this idea that it was Patriots Day, and I was wicked thirsty, and somebody was going to give me a B. And I, I just had, I'd been, uh, to the annoyance of my girlfriend the whole time, I'd been practicing my Boston accent with every Uber <laughs> driver and cab driver in town. And so we get down to that line, and it's the red brick houses, if you will, along the, the row houses, right? And you can see the, the sit-go sign again. And I see a bunch of what appear to be rich kids hanging out. And, uh, and, they, and I'm like, well, they've got to have good beer. And they're all drinking beer. So I go up and I'm going, I'm wicked thirsty. I need something to drink. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, I missed the last water stop. Can I get a beer? And this woman's like, you, you want some of my beer? And she hands it to me. And I was like, oh, that was so good. Thanks so much. She was like, you can keep it. <laughs> and it was good. It was like an IPA. Like, it was high dollar. So there I am running mile 25-ish of the Boston Marathon drinking a beer. <laughs> Just running down the road, other people around me are not pleased, the police officers are laughing, and I'm drinking a beer, and, and I, that was perfect. And then in the last two miles, out of the literally tens of thousands of people who lined the course, I saw Kat in the crowd, like I saw her, and I was able to say hi, and then I had a former student who I taught years ago, who lives in Boston, and I saw him right before the turns on to um, Hereford and Boylston and going into the last section and then I, I did a Facebook live and it was beautiful because I let go and I just ran it and it was just fun and I think sometimes we get really caught up in these ideas of performance and metrics and pace per mile and Boston reminded me that you can just have fun even running 26.2 miles and I crossed that finish line and it was just fantastic. I literally have no other photos from that. Like there's no fiddle, finish line photos or anything along those lines. Uh, this was really the only photo I could actually find from that whole trip that was close to being the Boston race. And I kind of like it that way because it was just, it was a trip to go and pay uh, homage, if you will, to all of that that had happened in the past. So moving on, here's where it comes down to in my general philosophy about running. There's a book about rock climbing, and the book uh, is called uh, Conquistadors of the Pointless. Because when you talk about rock climbing, and I did rock climbing for a lot of years, 
um, it really is very pointless because rock climbing is all about just finding this random line up a boulder that you can walk around. For example, if you're doing bouldering, right, you go onto the field and you're like, this boulder looks really difficult. I'm just going to walk around it. And boulders are like, let me find out. And they grab a hold of holds and you want to try and find some of the most difficult ways up and over it and things like that. And even climbing, you go to something like Yosemite, which I had the, the chance finally to go to Yosemite this year. And you can walk a path up Half Dome. You can just walk up. You've even got, you know, there are poles and, and ropes and wires that are set up. And you just hold on to those or you can climb the face. And rock climbers choose to climb the face. And the nose, right? If you want to go up El Capitan, you can do the trail up the backside and be at the top of El Capitan. And other people, uh, Alex Hummeld in the last year, he free soloed that without a rope, 3,000 feet vertical, going straight up without a rope. And the book uh, by Tierney is the guy who wrote it. He said, it, we are conquistadors of the pointless. And I've always really liked that. And when I came back into running, um, it's always resonated with me. Because no matter what race we do, it's contrived. It's utterly contrived, just like rock climbing routes. You know? And I have this tendency to run these you know, very long distances that most people respond with, I don't even like to drive that far. <laughs> you know? I say, this is my race, and they say, oh, I, can't, I, I really wish that I got paid every time somebody said that. And, and, and it is, it's pointless. You could drive that far. You could just drive there. And so I, I'm taking these ideas from Rich, like we could have driven all those places that we went. And I've loved the concept of conquistadors of the pointless. That you just go out and you look and you say, I want to run there. Whatever it is. Pick a point on a map. Get inspired by something and just go. And just head out your house and have no plan. Put on an old Timex Iron Man. Forget the GPS. Forget everything else. And just go out and run. Because it's pointless anyway. A 5K, right, is arbitrary. We don't even live in a country that measures things by the metric system. <laughs> and yet we sit there and say, we're going to run 5K. And man, we will get pissed if it's not 5K. Like all of a sudden, we are absolute experts on the conversion from kilometers to miles. We will get upset about that. My watch says 3.087. You know, that is not 5K. Trust me, because I've, I've had people at the end of races come up and show me their watches. I mean, I... I, I do direct the gate-to-gate -gate run, and I say it's 25K and 50K, once again, metric distances. And afterwards, people come up to me and show me my, their watches and say, well, the, the course wasn't accurate. That's it. Conquistadors are the pointless. I went out in, in, in San Francisco, and I found a trail combination that was uh, 25K. We're going to call it 25K today. It sounds great. And that's what it is. We're going to go out there and we're going to, it's 50K, do it twice. <laughs> hey, this is fun. Go out and do it again. Right? It's just conquistadors of the pointless. And so I have some photos up here. Uh, the first photo on the left is a, a good friend of mine up in North Carolina. His name is Chris Geekus. He used to live here in Gainesville, actually. And he lives up in Asheville now. And he is a, truly a conquistador of the pointless. And so he constantly creates, in ultra running, uh, when it's unsanctioned, we call it a fat ass. I really, I, one of these days I'm going to find out why. I've never looked into it. But if it's just, hey, let's go do blank. So this is a photo at the start of this year's Shuffle Up and Skinny Dip. So you start at his house in Asheville at 9 p.m. 
you go through some <coughs> private land. And you get through the private land, which is owned by the Biltmore, but, you know, we went around it entirely, obviously. We were completely illegal. And then you get on the Mountain to Sea Trail. You follow the Mountain to Sea Trail to the Arboretum that's there. And then you do the shut-in trail from there all the way up to the top of Mount Pisgah. But we start at 9 p.m. So you just, you just go. And, and there were, we were pre-gaming. Right? We were having beers and pizza and bacon and all, like, all of the worst ideas you could have before you start a long run is what we were doing as part and parcel to this. And this was the photo right before we started. We were very happy when we started this. So we start off with these headlamps and we go into the woods. And, and the shut-in trail is no joke going all the way up to the top of Mount Pisgah. And we timed it to get there at sunrise, which then someone would meet us in the parking lot with Bojangles chicken biscuits and coffee. Yes. <laughs> and then we would climb to the top of the spire of Mount Pisgah where there's a, a, a TV tower and then come back down. And then we would do another 17 miles on the Mountain Sea Trail to a place called Skinny Dip Falls. And so we would shuffle up and then we would skinny dip. It rained for five hours. It started raining as soon as we got down out of Mount Pisgah and it rained for 17 miles until we got to Skinny Dip Falls. So it was as if we had all been skinny dipping all day. And it was hilarious, and it was fun. Like, I have no idea what my pace was. I mean, my garment will tell me something. But you're hiking up a mountain in the middle of the night. Uh, there are bears. Uh, we, saw, we saw a loose horse last year. It was just running through the woods. Like, we have no idea where the hell the horse came from. But it came across the trail, and two guys behind me were like, Horse! <laughs> and, just, and the horse just went by. Um, and so that's part of it. This year at the Melon Run, um, I decided to go all out in my stars and stripes. And uh, yeah. <laughs> somehow I still got a melon out of that deal. Uh, but that's the kind of thing. Like Sometimes I think we take things a little too seriously for being conquistadors of the pointless. Like We, we should have fun running three miles. We should, on the 4th of July be asinine and try and find every possible red, white, and blue combination and just go out there and run it. Uh, other conquistadors of the pointless. There's a race that I did this past uh, spring and it was eight hours of hell is the name of the race. A bad idea. <laughs> it starts at 10 a.m. in May and goes until 6 p.m. And it's a 4.7 mile, 7.5 mile loop on, bike, on mountain bike trails. How many can you do in eight hours? It's completely pointless. <laughs> One lap is enough in that heat and humidity. It was completely pointless. And so I went out and did that. The last photo, uh, what has now turned into a tradition, on uh, the third Thursday of October at Tipples, we have Oktoberfest. And I have no idea what a T-Rex has to do with Oktoberfest, but a friend of mine bought me this T-Rex suit. And so now every year I wear that T-Rex suit and run the four miles of the Tipples run, uh, and I race in that T-Rex suit. It's disgusting. There's several things that I've learned over the years. First of all, it does get dark. You can't see it. It fogs over on the inside. You're using the force the whole time. And pro tip, Never fart inside of the T-Rex suit. It doesn't go anywhere. Just a friend told me that. That's just something I thankfully learned. So 
as we talk about all these aspects of running and being on the track and going out and doing things, I would say that try and embrace being a conquistador of the pointless. Every race director who's ever set up a race, it's completely arbitrary. You just start, I'm going to start here, we're going to go there, we're going to turn around, we're going to come back. You can do it on any given day. And what your time is on one day may be a completely different time on another day. You may have a great day one day, and you may have a terrible day the next day. It's completely arbitrary. We are conquistadors of the pointless. And when we, when we understand that, or at least I have felt that, when I've understood that, it's taken a lot of pressure off of me that I get to enjoy running a little bit more. So some other things here, as I said. So first of all, it's conquistadors of the pointless. And then sometimes it's best when it's about someone else. As I said, I, I had this thing that clicked when I ran with Wendell. And I started thinking about it, and I started realizing the first time that I ever did something, you're going to love that photo. That's 1984, and that's a bicycle that's way too big for me. And it was a bike-a-thon. And it was a half-mile loop. And the whole idea was to ride the half-mile loop as many times as possible, recording every lap, and that would raise money for some cause. I forget what cause it was, but it was a bike-a-thon. And they had dirt at the turnaround. And that bike, as you can tell, is not a mountain bike of any kind. And it was way too big for me. So every time that I had to do the turnaround, I had to jump off the bike, walk it through the turnaround, and go back out. This also says that I was already in the idea of doing these conquistador of the pointless types of things. Like, what, we just ride a bike around in this half-mile loop over and over again? All right, sounds great. But it was for a cause, and I was determined. I don't know if you can see my face in this grainy photo, but I was friggin' determined that I was going to get as many laps as possible. In the middle photo there, uh, Rob, who gave me the intro, he, he came to me and he said, I'm going to run an ultra. I was like, fantastic, man. He's like, I was like, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to run a 50-miler. Now, most people start with a 50K. And starting with a 50-miler is a terrible idea, which means that I was on board immediately with this plan. And so I said, all right, well, how much does it cost? I was like, holy crap, that's expensive. I'll tell you what, I'll meet you at mile 15, and I'll run the rest of it with you because I could do that for free. And so I met him in Flagler Beach, and this whole race was run from nearly St. Augustine all the way down A1A to the Sebastian Inlet, down A1A, like on the, we had two very brief sections on the beach. And, uh, and it was a terribly bad idea. Like it, that race is a bad idea all the way around. First of all, just think about that. Running in a straight line down A1A for 50 miles. There is nothing. And you're running right through Daytona. You're on the sidewalks. You're just running down the road for the vast majority of that race. So Rob asked me to do it. And I said, absolutely. We even had matching calf socks on. Uh, we sang all sorts of songs. At one point, his hernia popped out, and, uh, and so he was putting it back in. As he said, uh, I started quoting the Monsters Incorporated song, which goes, put that thing back where it came from, so help me, so help me. And so we started singing songs along those. There were lots of other songs that we sang that were mildly too absolutely inappropriate. The best part, though, was finishing. And I had run other ultras. And this still ranks as one of my all-time favorite ultra finishes. It was in the middle of the night. No one was... It was, once again, pointless. Like, why would you do this? And you do it because there's something else. And in this case, it was finishing with Rob. And now, uh, as some of you know, I do have uh, two rules running. And it really gives me a lot of joy 
uh, to be able to do this with other people, to do it with uh, someone else. And so there's a photo of me back on the track. And I take my runners out to the track every single week. And we do a track workout. And so while I might be known as that guy who runs these ultra marathons and off the trail and all this other stuff, I go back to the track every single week. So if the whole idea of being a conquistador of the pointless might not appeal to you, then maybe possibly doing it for someone else. Finding someone else out there and running with them. And taking somebody else and remembering, I always remember Rich. Like Rich just said, come on and come with me. And I was like, all right. And I had no idea what I was doing. And he always waited for me. He always ran at my pace. He never made me feel like I was running too slow. And, and when it, was, it got really long, he could tell. And he was like, oh, let's walk for a bit. And I know what he was doing now. But at the time, I was like, oh, thank God, Rich is tired. He wasn't. But he always stopped and waited for me. And so sometimes it is best when, it is, when it's about someone else. And so here's a tale of two trails. We've talked about all these different types of things. The, the photo on the left is the Mohican Trail 100, which is in Ohio. And the one on the right is the Iron Horse 100, which is just uh, down the road in Florham. And so a tale of two trails. So I do love running in trails. And as I titled this, uh, From the Track to Trails and Back Again. Um, the Mohican Trail 100 uh, is a Western States qualifier. So Boston was a qualifier that I'd wanted for years. The other one that I wanted was Western States. Western States is the Boston Marathon of ultra running. It's a 100-mile race through the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California. Uh, you do have to qualify every year. There are only certain races that are deemed uh, uh, long enough or hard enough uh, that you can qualify. So you have to qualify every year to get in the lottery. And then in the lottery, it comes down to it, there are 369 spots available in the Western States 100 every year. It's a random number because they run through the Granite Chief Wilderness, which is a national park, and they had to grandfather themselves in when it was officially made um, that it was illegal to do an organized race through a national park, and they got grandfathered in by the highest number of participants that they had had two years before, 369. So forever and ever and ever, this was back in the 80s, forever and ever and ever, the Western States 100 is limited to 369 people. So last year, 4,500 odd people uh, applied to get in. And um, so you run these races like the Mohican Trail 100, which is a Western States qualifier. And I had trained all year for this. And this was like my go-to race. And I DNF'd, which means did not finish. I got to mile 52 of the race. Things had been going progressively worse and worse. I had started cramping everywhere. My stomach went south. Uh, everything I tried to take in went right back out again. Uh, and so when you're faced with that, I, I battled through that for about 19 miles on the trails. It was on the second loop. Just all this, everything was going great. It was fantastic. And then it wasn't. And it was this slog of 19 miles on this hilly course. Apparently, Ohio has hills. And they find, found every last one of them for this course. And so you're on these hills, and it was getting warm, and I was throwing up, and I was just, it was just a terrible day. And I got into the start-finish area where uh, my friend Hunter was waiting for me, and um, we had to, I sat there for two hours, actually. And I said, if I can drink this half liter of Gatorade and keep it down, I'm going to go back out. And I couldn't. Two hours I sat there, and I couldn't do it. Um, but I, and he was like, well, he was doing the math. He was like, if you still average, I was doing really well up until that point. He's like, if you, if you, if you do this pace, you can still finish. You can still finish. 
And I decided that it, it wasn't worth it. Like, you get a belt buckle when you finish one of these trail ultra marathons. And I was like, do I want a belt buckle or a ride in an ambulance? <laughs> and I decided that I didn't want to risk either, and so I stopped. And because I stopped, in this photo, my son Sam is over there on the left in the photo. My daughter Eliana was there with us. And they had been playing around all day. And they were hanging out with Hunter and then going off and doing things. And when we finished, Sam resolved to come down to, with me to the official finish line. I ran down and I officially quit. They tore up part of my bib, officially DNF. They even asked me, are you absolutely sure? But I'd been training for this for months. And I was like, yeah. And we walked back and we're walking back to the car and there's a little river that was going by the trail, going back to the car. And I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go in the river. And I took off my shoes and socks and I was like, I'm gonna put my, my beat up legs in the river and I'm just gonna sit in the river. And Sam, my son, he came out in the river and uh, he was hanging out there and I picked up this rock and I threw it, not even really thinking, and it skipped. And Sam was like, how'd you do that? And I was like, how have I never talked to you about this? Like, I feel like I failed you in some way. You're 12 years old and you don't know how to skip a rock. And so we started skipping rocks and Hunter came out and we're skipping rocks and I turned and the sun was setting and the whole river lit up gold. And so if any of you are, are fans of Robert Frost, that nothing gold can stay, right? Nature's first green is gold, her heart is you to hold. Her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. And it goes on like that. And I had this moment where it was absolutely golden. And I never would have had that moment if I hadn't DNF'd. Skipping rocks on a river in Ohio at sunset. And it helped put things in perspective about our races and what really matters in the end. So while I had trained like crazy for this, because I really wanted to get into Western states, that failure became a success in that sense. The other race is a success. I don't have any, I mean, the other one was probably, that was my fastest 100 miler. I ran the floor home race, the Iron Horse 100. I ran that in 18 hours and 20 odd minutes for 100 miles. I came in second overall and I was super excited about that. And at the end of the night, I just kind of walked over. Somebody handed me my buckle. I got my picture at the finish. There was all these wonderful friends who had run with me. But it wasn't that moment that was on the river. Just chucking rocks with my son. And I have that belt buckle now. But I have that memory. And I'll trade that buckle for that memory any day. Easily enough. Without even a second hesitation. So those are two trails. So we start talking about western states. So I did finally get into the Western States 100 this past year. And um, it, was, it was an exciting moment. I got in. I, had, uh, I, I did not qualify at uh, Mohican. I went and ran another race in the desert. Florida running, finally paying off. I ran in the desert at the Javelina 100 outside of uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And I was able to get my qualifier. I got into the lottery for the fourth year in a row. And I finally got into the Western States 100. And so I went there, and this is the interesting thing about this. It all comes back around. 100 miles of trail running through the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California, and it ends on a track in Auburn, California. It ends on a track. So I started running, and I had been training for months. Like every single thing I did was about Western states. I would say that. It's about Western states. It's about Western states. Every month I had an ultra that I ran. I was like, this is about Western states. This is about Western states. And I was, I was doing pretty well. I was doing well at these ultras. 
Right? I, I, I was winning some of these ultras. And I was going and going out and I was nailing. I was training. I was added strength training. I added mobility training. Runners are not very mobile, I found out. And so you start doing mobility training. And you're like, wow, that's supposed to bend? Okay. So you do that stuff. And I finally, I do all this stuff. And I, and I make this whole long road trip. And I go to Northern California. Western States 100. One of 369 people who got to run it this year. And I had this goal. They got two belt buckles that you can get when you finish the Western States 100, right? Because it, it, it started off as a horse race. This is the long story of it, very brief. Started off as a horse race. Doing 24 hours, you get a belt buckle because they're cowboys. So when the first guy decided to do it on foot, they gave him a belt buckle because that's all they had. So then everybody's like, well, when we do trail 100s, we get belt buckles. So we all go for these belt buckles. Well, at Western States, they give two different types of belt buckles. If you finish in under 24 hours, you get a silver belt buckle. Oh, it's snazzy. <laughs> it's real snazzy. All right? Some of you have run some races just because of the medals. Right? Anything about those? Yeah. This is a, it's real silver. This is not even silver plated. It is a real silver belt buckle. And on the back, automatic, no extra charge. They engrave your name and your finishing time, everything. The day of the race. This is, that's a crazy part about the organization that they have. And man, I was silver buckle dreams. Hashtag silver buckle dreams. I'd run and run on the weekends. Hashtag silver buckle dreams. Silver buckle dreams. Silver buckle dreams. I was killing it. I was doing great. Ten miles into the Western States 100, my hamstring started cramping. Ten miles. There are 90 more. <laughs> and it's not flat. It's not easy. This is through the Sierra Nevada mountains. The first 20 miles averaged 7,000 feet above sea level. In the first four miles, we gained 3,000 feet of elevation in the first four miles of that race. And then you average 7,000 feet above sea level for the first 20 miles. And then at mile 40, they drop you into what they lovingly refer to as the canyons. And you go straight down to the bottom of this canyon where all the heat sits. And then you climb up the climb that's called Devil's Thumb. Right. Everything went to hell on the Devil's Thumb. Like I had been managing-ish along that way. And then all of a sudden, everything started cramping. And I'm going up the devil's thumb, and I'm hating life. And I've done plenty of other road races, or trail races, rather, and I've done well. And I'm going up. It's not going well. I have to stop. I'm lightheaded. I'm dizzy. I'm cramping. It's bad. One guy stopped me. He's like, just think about this as the, the, the difficult trail that you've always been training on every weekend. Think about that trail. And I was like, I'm from Florida. He's like, oh, well, then never mind. That won't work. <laughs> and he just kept going and just left me on the side of the trail. I get up to the top, and I was, they were like, how are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm not doing so well. And they put me in the medical tent. First time in my life in a race, they were just like, you don't get a choice. And they sat me down in the medical tent, and they're like, you need salt. I'm like, I don't think it's salt. They're like, nope, it's salt. And so I'm eating salt like crazy, and I'm sitting there, and I'm lamenting everything that's happening to me. And this guy's talking to me. He's a really nice guy. He starts talking to me. And I glance over, and he's got one leg. And I've been complaining about my muscle cramps to this guy for the last 10 minutes. And he's got one leg. And I noticed that, and there's a, I look up at him and I was like, I'm sorry, are you Dave Mackey? 
a very famous ultra runner, had an accident, lost his leg, has now come back to ultra running. This year he finished the Leadville 100 with a prosthetic leg, and I was complaining about my muscle cramps to Dave Mackey. <laughs> he was nice though, he was nice to me in that sense, but I was like, are you Dave Mackey? He's like, yeah, I was like, I didn't wanna say, well, I recognized your prosthetic. Um, and so he, he was great though, and he put me through it, but it started putting things in perspective, like, I had too much re 